course there's bad churches. Um, then go find a good one. And if you have to drive to get to it, then it's worth the drive, I would say. You know? So get in your car and go. I mean, how bad do you want it? I mean, how important is the truth to you? Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your Squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. It is so good to have you with us. It is Friday. Let's do our little Friday dance. Yes. Happy Friday. The weekend is here. That means we are one day closer to going to church on Sunday. So let me begin the show by reminding you, the day after tomorrow is Sunday. You should be in church. Just saying. This is Squirrel Chatter, a podcast dedicated primarily to scripture, theology, history, current events, and whatever else I want to talk about. A webcast every day, Monday through Friday at 7.30 a.m. Mountain Time on Twitter, Facebook, and Twitch. And then the audio podcast is downloadable wherever you find fine podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, etc., etc., etc. And we are a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can head on over to christianpodcastcommunity.com. Check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. You are sure to find something worth listening to. So what do we got going this Friday? Well, we have prayers from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. We have a reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ, and it's Federalist Friday. Today we're going to be looking at Federalist number 17 as we continue to work our way through the Federalist Papers, which was something we started before the midterm elections, but we're going to keep right going through through till we're done. And uh, then, we're, like I said, we're going to read through the... Uh, Federalist Papers, then we're going to go back and look at the Constitution in a lot more depth than we did last summer when we just ran, read through it. I think that was last summer, sometime last year, when we started Federalist Fridays. Excuse me for sniffling. Um, all right, well, let us begin, as is our practice, with the Prayer of Confession from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life, to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. And now our reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. Why Christ, or why Jesus, rejected sensationalism. 
On the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, Matthew 4, 7. The Lord Jesus had two good reasons for not participating in a worldly spectacle such as jumping from the temple roof. First, such sensationalism is captive to the laws of diminishing returns. To generate and hold people's allegiance to him merely by stunning signs, Jesus would have needed to produce greater and greater signs. People would never have been satisfied and would always have demanded just one more miracle, one additional showy event. Real faith would not have been uncertain. Or real faith would not have been certain. They would have been lovers of sensation more than lovers of God, which similarly could happen to any of us who don't trust God's already revealed will. Second and more important, for Jesus to participate in sensational signs would have demonstrated a profound mistrust in his heavenly Father and a presumptuous, faithless testing of God. But that's what the devil wanted so that Jesus' sin would shatter his claim to divinity and ruin humanity's hope of salvation. Such an action would have questioned the Father's providence and love and the wisdom of his redemptive plan. If our sinless Savior and Lord shunned sensationalism, we as imperfect men and women ought never to live recklessly or carelessly, expecting God to rescue us when we get into earthly trouble or spiritual peril. Ask yourself, perhaps you don't consider yourself a risk taker, but looking honestly at your own life, do you spot some behaviors that are spiritually risky? Actions that presume on the grace of God. In humble repentance today, surrender these things to the Lord. Receive, but do not force his great mercy. All right, it is Federalist Friday. We are looking at Federalist number 17. This is again one of the Federalist papers written by Alexander Hamilton. The title of it is, The Same Subject Continued, the insufficiency of the present confederation to preserve the union. Just to stop right there and point out this level of argumentation, this level of explaining something, and by argumentation I don't mean, you know, yes you did, no I didn't, yes you did, no I didn't. I mean, the, the, the level of developing an argument and presenting a position as a long-term thing. I mean, these were articles published in the paper. This particular one was published Tuesday, December 4th, 1787. And so these, even if they're being published one a day, there's over 80 of them. So you're looking at literally months of presenting your case. This is now, I believe, the third Federalist paper that deals with this subject. So each of these newspaper articles were presenting the same subject, further developing the argument over a period of months. When's the last time you can recall a government policy discussion laid out in this way. 
and and both sides were doing this. We have the anti-federalist papers as well that were written against the ratification of the Constitution. Not planning on looking at those, although they did make some interesting arguments. Um, but, you know, the, the fact that you had these two sides that were taking a great deal of time to lay out the argumentation for their position and to refute the argumentation of the other position over weeks and months in long-form written dialogue, written presentations of their cases. We have lost that. I can't recall ever seeing anything like that in my lifetime. Now, I've, I've you know, there are books published that, that lay out cases in their long books, and I've got stacks of books on current events and political issues because I, I'm interested in those subjects. But they're not written like this, and they're not, you know, this was in a paper. This was in the newspaper. This was being read and talked about at dinner tables and in restaurants and, and pubs. These were the sorts of things that were being talked about on the streets. Now, this was long before television, long before radio, um, and, and a lot of it, you know, the fact that the people were, were less distracted by the current events. They didn't have iPhones and they didn't have computers and they didn't have all of the things that distract us these days. And so they were able to give their attention to this long form argument. But even the fact that the people put that the, the federalists and the anti-federalists put forth this level of argumentation this was not sound bites. These were long, art, long articles that were then read and discussed, as I said, in the pub, on the street, at the dinner table. You know, it breaks at work because these were important uh, matters that everyone was interested in. Nowadays, I was had lunch with a friend yesterday, and we were talking about the the man on the street interviews that you see sometimes on on YouTube and and Facebook and whatnot, where it's the Fourth of July, and they're asking people at the beach what we're celebrating, and and if they actually get Independence Day correctly, it's like, well, who did who did America become independent from? They don't know. Um, you know, who was the civil war between? They, they don't know. Um, we were discussing there was actually a, a video where they asked somebody, in what country is the Great Wall of China? And they didn't know. <laughs> and yet, they turn around and ask them what was Taylor Swift's biggest hit or what was Taylor Swift's last album or what was, uh, you know, who was Beyonce dating? And those answers are forthcoming quickly. So, you know, the, the, we, we need to weep. Um, I've, I've decried our public education system 
and that's one of the reasons why. But it's not just the public education system. It's the fact that parents are allowing these distractions in the lives of their children so that they are not paying attention to the subjects they're supposed to be studying. They're paying attention to pop culture. And we were talking about growing up, because he and I are the same age. I'm a little bit older than he is, but not much. And we both grew up, you know, I grew up in the, the late 70s, early 80s. He grew up in the late 80s, early 90s. And, you know, so we have some overlap there. And it was bad enough with television. Now, when I was growing up, we really only had three channels. In Atlanta, we had five, really, because we had ABC, NBC, CBS, we had PBS, and we had Channel 17, a, a little-known UHF channel called WTBS, which is now, of course, TBS, and it's a big, you know, he, you know, Ted Turner was able to use cable to make this little WTBS UHF channel, Channel 17, where you could get, you know, Monster Week with, you know, all the Japanese monster movies or, or you know, James Bond Week, where you'd have all the James Bond movies and you know, it was it was all reruns. Um, that's where I watched Gilligan's Island. That's where I watched Father Knows Best. That's where I was watching these shows that had gone off the air before I was of an age to watch them. They were reruns on WTBS, Channel 17. Um, so I grew up with five TV stations until I was 11 and we moved to Montana. And once we moved to Montana, we actually had two channels at our house. Because in Missoula, the, we had we, we had broadcast. We didn't have cable living out where we did. Cable wasn't available. It was available in town. And that was starting to be a thing in the, in the late 70s, early 80s. But where we lived, we had two channels. Because there were two TV stations in Missoula. Not three, two. And they, if I remember correctly, one of them was an NBC station, the other one was an ABC station, and they split CBS programming between them. Um, or maybe it was, one was an NBC, one was a CBS, and they split ABC program between them. But whichever, you know, you would have to watch, if you wanted to watch something that was a a show on that third network, they were played late at night after the news. So you would get the primetime, if it was the NBC station, you would get the primetime NBC shows. And then late in the evening after the news, you would get the primetime ABC shows uh, or, or CBS shows. I can't remember which network they split. I think it was CBS. Um, because I think it's unusual now because the, the channel that had been ABC, CBS, they, they gave up the rights to ABC when a new station started and they kept CBS. But at the beginning, 
you know, ABC was a more popular station, and it was it was noticeable during the '80s they switched from from one network to the other in the primetime lineup. Um, but you know, that's a that's a the world that I grew up in, and it was bad enough being exposed to the pop culture through television and radio and some of the things and attitudes and stuff just from TV shows and just from, from movies and radios and radio, you know, music and, and such that we were exposed to when I was growing up. I didn't have YouTube available 24-7. Certainly didn't have these pornography websites available 24 seven. Um, you know, we were, we were talking about, you know, the average age of children viewing pornography is like eight or nine. Whereas with, you know, I was in college. Okay. Well, I was in the air force before I ever saw a pornographic film. Um, it just wasn't something that, you know, and, and, and that was in the late eighties when you could rent videos and somebody had rented videos and brought them back to the dorm. I always, I lived in the dorm cause I was single and it was, you know, you had to pay for it. <laughs> so there was something about being a, uh, a young single guy and trying to save up all the money you could. So, you know, but somebody had brought something back to the dorm and it was being watched in the day room. That was my first exposure to a pornographic film. I would have been 19, maybe 20. And the kids nowadays, it's on their phones. You know, before the video rental business, you had to go to a really shady part of town to view pornographic film. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I remember, you know, kids bringing their dad's playboy to school and, you know, we're all passing it around and looking at the playboy as a, you know, eight, nine, 10 or year old. So I guess, you know, if you count that as porn, that was, you know, I was, that was probably in, in, no, I was actually probably 11 or 12. Now that I think about it, it, it just, you know. But still entirely too young. Um, so we've allowed great distraction and destructive distraction into the lives of the children in our society. And it is great, great detriment to our society. And I don't know that we will ever see the kind of long-form argumentation that the Federalist Papers represent. So it's definitely something to consider. How deeply do we think about issues? How deeply do we think about current events? And how deeply do we think about Scripture and the matter of God? Um, Psalm 1, his delight is in the law of the Lord and on God's law, he meditates day and night. And here we are distracting ourselves with TikTok videos and YouTube videos of cats and whatnot. And I mean, 
on the one hand, it's like there's nothing wrong with being entertained. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, watching a TV show or a movie, mostly. But we can't let that be our normal daily life. Um, you know, I, I remember being a kid, being allowed to watch a couple of hours of TV a day. Um, we always kind of had a thing where you had to pick a show or a show or two out of the primetime lineup, and that was all you got to watch. So, you know, Thursday nights, I mean, now I'm talking high school. I wasn't allowed to sit. I didn't have a TV in my room. I was not allowed to sit and watch TV for hours and hours and hours. You know, I mean, you could watch football on Sunday afternoon or golf on Sunday afternoon with Dad. Um, but it was his TV, you know. Um, but we used to always, you know, to like, there would be Thursday nights. I always made sure I watched Magnum P.I. and Simon and Simon. That was Thursday nights. Um, great stuff. But then it was, you know your TV time was done and you could go read. I mean, you didn't, I mean, you know, I'm 15, 16 years old. I didn't have a bedtime at that age, but you know, I could go read. I could work on, you know, homework that I hadn't gotten done or anything like that. I had, but I had to get away from the television and that was, you know, I could even go listen to music, but I couldn't sit in the family room and watch television. We had two televisions in the house. We had the big color television in the family room, and Mom had like a little six-inch black and white in the kitchen so that she could watch the news while she was preparing dinner. That was really, it was mostly, it was a, it was a TV radio. It was an AM, FM radio with a little four-inch or six-inch TV screen. Um, if I remember right, I've got it in the other room. I think I've still got that TV. Um but it's just a little black and white four or six inch screen with an AM FM radio on it. And it was used primarily as a radio. Uh, most of the time it was on in the morning, listening to the morning news on the radio as we were getting ready for school and mom and dad were getting ready to go to work. That radio would be on and we would be listening to, to the news, but mom would use the TV in the evening. Um, to, you know, she would watch the news while she was cooking dinner and she would usually have whatever primetime show we were all watching in the family room in the basement. She would have it on in the kitchen while she was cleaning up from dinner so that when she came downstairs to sit with the rest of us, she wasn't, she was already up on the show, whatever. Um, but yeah, this, this kind of long form, undistracted argumentation is long gone. I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I always seem to have something playing in the background. Um, I've gotten to the point now I'm, I'm using like ambient sound YouTube videos so that I've got noise while I'm reading or studying because I can't deal with quiet anymore because I live in a world where there's constant noise. Um, quite often I'll have a, you know, I have podcasts playing almost all day long. 
I'm listening to sermons. I'm I'm listening to conference messages. I'm I'm listening to to podcasts like this one where where somebody's talking about the issues. And and you know it's 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 a constant distraction. And this is something that's been weighing on me that you know maybe I need to to step back a little bit and and kind of quit paying as much attention to stuff like that. Getting get back into more my own thoughts and reading and stuff. And it's not that I'm not reading. I am, but, uh, I could probably spend a lot more time reading than I do. All right. Federalist number 17. Now that I've killed 15 minutes rambling on about something, the same subject continued the insufficiency of the present consideration to preserve the union for the independent journal Tuesday, December 4th, 1787, by Alexander Hamilton, to the people of the state of New York. An objection of a nature different from that which has been stated and answered in my last address may perhaps be likewise urged against the principle of legislation for the individual citizens of America. It may be said that it would tend to render the government of the Union too powerful and to enable it to absorb those residuary authorities which it might be, which it might, excuse me, which it might be judged proper to leave with the states for local purposes. Allowing the utmost latitude to the love of power, which any reasonable man can require, I confess that I am at a loss to discover what temptation the persons entrusted with the administration of the general government could ever feel to divest the states of the authorities of that description. The regulation of the mere domestic police of a state appears to me to hold out slender allurements to ambition, commerce, finance, negotiation, and war seem to comprehend all the objects which have the charms for minds governed by that passion, and all the powers necessary to those objects ought, in the first instance, to be lodged in the national depository. The administration of private justice between the citizens of the same state the supervision of agriculture and other concerns of similar nature, all those things, in short, which are proper to be provided for by the local legislation, can never be desirable cares of a general jurisdiction. Oh, how wrong he was! It is therefore improbable that there should exist a disposition in the federal councils to usurp the powers with which they are connected, because the attempt to exercise those powers would be as troublesome as it would be nugatory, and the possession of them, for that reason, would contribute nothing to the dignity, to the importance, or to the splendor of the national government. All right, I got to look up nugatory. All right, try to, let's see, look up, define, nugatory, a pointless observation, worthless, of no value, of no importance, unimportant, nugatory. New word. There we go. But let it be admitted, for argument's sake, that mere wantonness and lust of domination would be sufficient to beget that disposition. Still, it may be safely affirmed that the sense of the constituent body of the national representatives, or, in other words, the people of the several states, would control the indulgence for so extravagant an appetite. It will always be far easier for the state governments to encroach upon the national authority than for the national government to encroach upon the state authorities. 
part of me wishes we could bring Alexander Hamilton forward to look at the current state of our federal government. The proof of this proposition turns upon the greater degree of influx which the state governments, if they administer their affairs with uprightness and prudence, will generally possess over the people, a circumstance which, at the same time, teaches us that there is an inherent and intrinsic weakness in all federal constitutions, and that too much pains cannot be taken in their organization to give them all the force which is compatible with the principles of liberty. The superiority of influence in favor of the particular governments would result, in, result partly from the diffusive construction of the national government, but chiefly from the nature of the objects to which the attention of the state administrators would be directed. It is a known fact in human nature, that is, affections are commonly weak in proportion to the distance or diffusiveness of the object. Upon the same principle that a man is more attached to his family than to his neighbor, to his neighborhood, than to his community at large, the people of each state would, feel, would, be, would be apt to feel a stronger bias towards their local governments than towards the governments of the Union, unless the force of that principle should be destroyed by a much better administration of the latter. This strong propensity of the human heart would find powerful auxiliaries in the objects of state regulation. The variety of more minute interests which will necessarily fall under the superintendence of the local administrations and which will form so many rivulets of influence running through every part of the society cannot be particularized without involving a detail too tedious and uninteresting to compensate for the instruction it might afford. There is one transcendent advantage belonging to the province of the state governments, which alone suffices to place the matter in a clear and satisfactory light. I mean the ordinary administration of criminal and civil justice. This, of all others, is the most powerful, most universal, and most attractive source of popular obedience and attachment. It is that which, being the immediate and visible guardian of life and property, having its benefits and its terrors in constant activity before the public eye, regulating all those personal interests and familial concerns to which the sensibility of the individual is more immediately awake, contributes, more than any other circumstance, to impress upon the minds of the people affection, esteem, and reverence toward the government. This great cement of society, which will diffuse itself almost wholly through the channels of the particular governments, independent of all other causes of influence, would ensure them so decided an empire, would ensure them so decided an empire over their respective citizens, as to render them at all times a complete counterpoise and not in unfrequent dangerous rival to the power of the Union. Operations of the national government, on the other hand, falling less immediately under the observation of the mass of the citizens, the benefits derived from it will chiefly be perceived and attended to by speculative men. Relating to more general interests, they will be less apt to come home to the feelings of the people and in proportion less likely to inspire a, a habitual sense of obligation and an active sentiment of attachment. The reasoning on this head has been abundantly exemplified by the experience of all federal constitutions with which we are acquainted, 
and of all others which have borne the least analogy to them. Though the ancient feudal systems were not, strictly speaking, confederacies, yet they partook of the nature of that species of association. There was a common head, chieftain or sovereign, whose authority extended over the whole nation, and a number of subordinate vassals or feudatories who had large portions of land allotted to them, and numerous trains of inferior vassals or retainers who occupied and cultivated that land upon the tenure of fealty or obedience to the persons of whom they held it. Each principal vassal was a kind of sovereign within his particular demounts. The consequences of of this situation were a continual opposition to authority of the sovereign, and frequent wars between the great barons or chief uh, feudatories themselves. The power of the head of the nation was commonly too weak either to preserve the public peace or to protect the people against the oppression of their immediate lords. This period of European affairs is emphatically styled by historians the times of feudal anarchy. When the sovereign happened to be a man of vigorous and warlike temper and of superior abilities, he would acquire a personal weight and influence which answered for the time the purpose of a more regular authority. But in general, the power of the barons triumphed over that of the prince, and in many instances his dominion was entirely thrown off, and the great fiefs were erected into independent principalities or states. In those instances in which the monarch finally prevailed over his vassals, his success was chiefly owing to the tyranny of those vassals over their dependents. The barons or nobles, equally the enemies of the sovereign and the oppressors, of the common people were dreaded and detested by both, till mutual danger and mutual interest affected a union between them fatal to the power of the aristocracy. Had the nobles, by a conduct of clemency and justice, preserved the fidelity and devotion of their retainers and followers, the contest between them and the prince must almost always have ended in their favor, and in the abridgment or subversion of the royal authority. This is not an assertion founded merely in speculation or conjecture. Among other illustrations of its truth, which might be cited, Scotland will furnish a cogent example. The spirit of clanship, which was in an early day introduced into that kingdom, uniting the nobles and their dependents by ties equivalent to those of kindred, rendered the aristocracy a constant overmatch for the power of the monarchy till the incorporation with England subdued its fierce and ungovernable spirit and reduced it within those rules of subordination which a more rational and more energetic system of civil polity had previously established in the latter kingdom. The separate governments in a confederacy may aptly be compared to the feudal baronies with this advantage in their favor that from the reasons already explained they will generally possess the confidence and goodwill of the people and with so important a support will be able effectually to oppose all encroachments of the national government. It will be well if they are not able to counteract its legitimate and necessary authority. The points of similitude consist in the rivalship of power applicable to both, and in the concentration of large portions of the strength of the community into particular deposits. In one case at the deposit of individuals, in the other case, at the disposal of political bodies. A concise review of the events 
that have attended Confederate governments will further illustrate this important doctrine, an inattention to which has been the great source of our political mistakes and has given our jealously a direction in the wrong side. This review shall form the subject of some ensuing papers. Publius. So, looking at that Federalist paper, this is probably the first time we've read a Federalist paper where I have to stop and say, boy, they were wrong. Um, I don't think they could ever have envisioned the kind of encroaching federal government that we have now, where the government has abrogated all of these nationwide powers. Part of that has to do with communication. I don't believe the founders of this nation could have anticipated instant communication from coast to coast, which allows a minute level of control at a national level where the federal government can almost instantaneously send federal law enforcement, something that is not provided for in the Constitution and was not envisioned by the founders. It said in that article we just read that, you know, the, the law enforcement, the, the daily, you know, criminal justice system was to be administered at the local level. They did not envision federal police agencies, of which we now have how many? You know, the alphabet agencies. You know, you've got the, you know, of course the FBI is the most well-known, but you've got the ATF. You've got, you know, DHS. Um, we, have, we have multiple U.S. Marshals. We have multiple federal law enforcement agencies which can be used tyrannically and has been used tyrannically by the federal government. If you study the history of the FBI, which I think it's 100 years old, maybe. I, I, I can't remember when it was founded, but it was in the early 20th century that the FBI was founded. And it may have been during Prohibition. It may have been the, the 1930s. Because J. Edgar Hoover was the, was the head, and he was still alive during the Kennedy administration. Um, I'm trying to remember when, when did J. Edgar Hoover die? But he, had, he was head of the FBI, and he was one of those feared people in Washington because he had the goods on everybody. So to think that the FBI has suddenly become political is very naive because it was political from its founding. Um, J. Edgar Hoover used the surveillance power of the FBI to blackmail private citizens and government officials to the point that he could, you know, why did he stay in power so long? Because nobody could touch him. Because if anybody had gone after J. Edgar Hoover, there were all sorts of secrets that J. Edgar Hoover knew that would be made public. And powerful men seem to have powerful secrets. So, you know, the, the not being able, the federal government couldn't control the federal law enforcement agency as long as J. Edgar Hoover was in charge because 
he was a master blackmailer. And I'm not saying anything that isn't historical fact. So I don't think the founders could have envisioned the, the possibility of tyranny under which we now live. They thought the states would always be able to keep the federal government in check. And sadly, that's no longer the case. So this was the first Federalist paper I've read as we've been going through them, where I've been going, huh, I wish he could see today. Interesting things to think about. All right, let us now recite together the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now the Collect for Grace. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, almighty and everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day, defend us in the same with thy mighty power, and grant that this day we fall into no sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings may be ordered by thy governance to do always that is righteous in thy sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, folks, that's Squirrel Chatter for Friday. Make sure to get yourself into church on Sunday, and I hope to see you again here on Monday for Monday Meandering. I've already got a list of stuff. Things have been happening, things that are worth talking about, and so we'll be bringing those up on Monday. But until then, have a great weekend. Have a great time of worship with the saints. Remember to do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. Eat at Chick-fil-A tomorrow because they're closed on Sunday. See you in church. See you back here on Monday. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.